Well, good morning to all of you. My name is Katie, and I'm one of the pastors here at Incarnation. I'm going to begin by praying for us. Lord God, I pray that you would purify our hearts. Burn away anything that is not consumed with love for you. And Lord, likewise, I pray that you would purify my lips. Amen. So Thursday was Ascension Day, and so um, we have this tradition in the Anglican Church where if there's a feast day that happens in the middle of the week, we have permission to move it to the Sunday following. So Ascension Day was Thursday, and so we're celebrating the Ascension today. And the Ascension is the day when we mark how 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he was taken up or lifted up into heaven, depending which reading you look at. And both of our readings from the writer Luke and the gospel, the gospel attributed to him and the Acts of the Apostles describe just how the disciples saw Jesus rising into the air. And presumably, he went so high that eventually he's hidden from their view by the clouds. It's a bit like when you see a plane flying overhead and you just like you're craning to see where it's going to go and then the clouds obscure it. I imagine it's a bit like that, right? It's a bit like when you're looking at something that is so high in the air that eventually you just lose sight of it. And I imagine that was what it was like for the disciples. And in our Acts reading, the disciples seem so shocked by what has just happened, as we would all be, that it takes this encounter with these two angelic figures It's a bit like those who greeted Mary Magdalene at the tomb, right? It's these like two angelic figures in both her story and in this story that sort of bring the person to themselves and sort of explain what it is that they've just experienced. And I like to think, I like to wonder, was it the same two angels, right? Did the same two angels who greeted Mary Magdalene come back and help out these befuddled disciples? But regardless, these are the angels that send them on their way back to Jerusalem And this is what the disciples saw, right? In both Acts and in the Gospel, what we see is a straightforward telling of what they witnessed. But as Jesus' words to his disciples before his ascension and our reading from Ephesians show us, there is more going on. There is more in reality than what we can see with our eyes. In the Bible, the heavens refer not just to the sky, but they refer to the place where God and other spiritual beings dwell. The land is where people live, and because God represents a higher and a more transcendent reality, it's natural that we would refer to him being above or up in the heavens. But in reality, as we see from the book of Genesis at the very, very beginning, the heavens and the earth are actually overlapping. And God's intent from the very beginning was that heaven and earth would be fully integrated. They would never be separated. So that his will would be done perfectly in the place where he dwells as it is on earth. But the union, that sort of ability for us to see into the heavens, has been fractured by sin. So now we can't see into heaven really at all, if ever. But what today's readings do is they sort of pull back the veil for the minute and they give us a glimpse of what is happening in heaven as these events are unfolding on earth. And as Ephesians says, that glimpse of heaven that's given in Acts 
and the gospel according to Luke is meant to help us perceive the hope to which God has called us, the riches of our inheritance as his saints, and the immeasurable power that is granted to believers through the Holy Spirit. Our view of the ascension is a bit like the transfiguration that we celebrated before Lent. At the transfiguration, the disciples and Jesus are surrounded by a cloud, and they hear a voice tell them that Jesus is God's son. Or it's like how in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha is in a city. He's surrounded by this enemy army. His servant is freaking out, and Elisha says, don't worry. He asks God to open his eyes, and then he sees the hills are just filled with armies of angels. Or it's a bit like Daniel, who has a reference to, um, he sees the ascension, and he sees this vision of the Son of Man ascending to a figure the Ancient of Days to receive ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. I think we're meant to see the ascension in the same way that all these other stories point to, which is a moment when God rips open the sky and allows us to see that collapsing of the heavens and the earth upon each other. And it's meant to encourage us. The ascension invites us to allow God to open the eyes of our own hearts so that we can perceive what is happening in the heavens and be encouraged by how God is at work. So let's talk about the ascension for a minute and what exactly is happening. First, it might seem obvious, but I think it's actually something that's messes with your mind a little if you think about it for too long. But Jesus' body goes into God's dwelling place, a place that previously only spiritual beings have ever resided in. But now, as the disciples see, Jesus' body that is scarred with nails, has been pierced by a sword, has eaten fish, right, and all the other food that he shared with his disciples, and his this body has gone into heaven to live with his father eternally. If, his, if at his death on the cross, Jesus offered his flesh as a sacrifice for the life of the world, and at his resurrection, he conquered death in his body, then at the ascension, what is happening is Jesus is healing that ruptured relationship between God and humans. He's taking flesh into heaven in order to restore that broken relationship between us and God, between the heavens and the earth that existed in the Garden of Eden. There's lots of ways of understanding the scope of what Ephesians means when it says that we are called to perceive the hope to which we have been called. But seen particularly through the lens of the ascension, I think that hope is meant to be focused that we will one day go where Christ has already gone. All those who have been baptized can trust that we will be united with God at our death in the same way that Jesus was, and that when Jesus returns from the heavens, we will enjoy a restored relationship between the heavens and the earth in our resurrected bodies. We will ascend that ladder, that path, that way to God that Jesus has already established for us by following in the path up to God and returning to earth. That is the same path that we will follow as well. At death, we will go to God and we will return. Well, we'll be resurrected in our resurrected bodies, but somehow our spirits and our bodies will be re-knit together and we will enjoy life with God on earth. But what is Jesus doing in this between time? 
Ephesians says that God the Father has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. I know it sounds like Jesus went to heaven just to have a rest. That's always the way I thought about it as a kid when I saw the images of the ascension. I was like, ah, oh, he worked really hard. Now he's just like, he's just going to go take a rest, maybe a nap, read a good book. Until, like, until someday God taps him on the shoulder and is like, you're needed again, you gotta go back, right? That's the way I saw it as a kid, and actually it took seminary to maybe like jog that out of me. So if you're like, yeah, what was he doing? I thought he was taking a rest. Don't feel bad. <laughs> but it's not quite right. So let's dig into what Ephesians says about what it means that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus being designated either by the voice of God or his disciples or people in the crowd. We hear him again referred to again and again as God's son or King David's son or the son of man. And where he's present, the reign or kingdom of God is shown in his authoritative words and miracles. But as we just saw, if you saw anything of the coronation of King Charles III, then you aren't really a king right? He had a long waiting period, and he wasn't really the king until he was crowned and given the authority of a king. Before your enthronement, you're just an heir. And while that's a privileged position, you don't have the authority that a king has. And so when Ephesians says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand, it's really saying that Jesus has finally been installed as the king, as co-regent over the universe with God the Father. In his earthly ministry, Jesus certainly acted as one with authority, and that's what people around him recognized. But now he reigns as king in heaven. He's no longer tethered to space and to time the way he was when he had a body. And so now he reigns as king in a different sort of way. And he gives us access by that presence with God, and he's continuing, continuously, serving as that way into the Father's presence, he advocates on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf. He's busy. And he's going to reign with God in that way, the Father, until all of his enemies, the last one being death, are destroyed and he returns. And I think I too, growing up, always thought, gosh, why, why is he up there? Why isn't he here? I would have such an easier time convincing people of the truth of the faith if he was just right here, and they could go to coffee with him, and they could sit down with him and see him. I cannot believe, I'm with the disciples, I cannot believe that it's better that Jesus is in heaven. But that's what Ephesians and the Gospel and Acts tell us. It is better that Jesus is in heaven because now he's not limited by time and space. He can be simultaneously everywhere and anywhere through his Holy Spirit and the sacraments. I mean, just imagine all the churches where the Eucharist is being celebrated today, and Jesus is present in every single place. He's present with the people who are not here on Zoom. He's present with our brothers and sisters around the world simultaneously. And if he was having coffee with my neighbors, he would not be in those places. And so there is a gift in the ascension. And so unlike in the time of the disciples, we don't need to be present in the crowd to hear his voice and witness his miracles. The Holy Spirit, which raised him the dead, has come upon us. 
And that is a good thing because it enables more people to know Jesus right now in a way that they never would have if he had remained with us. The Spirit is at work equipping and enabling us to hear God's voice as Jesus did and to live as he did so that others might know him through us. And it's the presence of the Spirit that reminds us that the unseen dimension of our creation where Jesus dwells is really not as far off as it seems. It is just as near as the breath you are breathing. And this distance and nearness of Jesus should be a source of worship and great joy. Distance because we can trust that he is co-ruling with his Father in heaven. And nearness because he's right here with you through the Holy Spirit. But the ascended Christ needs witnesses who have met him, who have known him intimately through the power of the Holy Spirit, to continue to witness to him. And it is in this way that the church spreads to the ends of the earth. I'm going to leave you with this thought on the ascension. A maturing faith is one that no longer requires contact with Jesus' physical body in order to believe. Rather, those who believe in him in this time after the ascension are summoned to the heights of heaven, where as the Father's equal, the only begotten Son is reached not by, spiritual ha- by physical handling, but by spiritual discernment, by our hearts that have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. To grow in faith is to increasingly become someone who sees the Lord by faith and not by sight. For faith is ultimately concerned with the unseen things that happen in the heavenlies. And so may the ascension be happening in us as we gain greater insight into God's glory and increasingly move from seeing to faith. I'm going to share one last thing. As I was preparing, as I was working on this sermon yesterday, I actually got a a voicemail message from a woman that I had prayed for 14 years ago. And I had had a pretty clear image of what God was calling her to and what he wanted her life to look like 14 years ago. I couldn't see it. I doubted my own perception of the Spirit's voice. And in her voicemail, she said, remember that time you prayed for me 14 years ago? I am now that person. And for me, it was a reminder of this last point, that to grow in faith is to be someone who increasingly looks to the heavens and is led by the Holy Spirit and has the ability to not be distracted by the things of earth, but is increasingly becoming more and more aligned with God the Father and the Son who dwell in unending light. Amen.